This programming is sponsored by the UH Health Family Care Center, offering primary care and behavioral health services on the University of Houston campus. Health insurance plans including Medicare and Medicaid accepted. New patient appointments and more at 832-UH-CARES. Welcome to Party Politics. I'm Jeronimo Cortina, a political scientist and associate director at the Center for Mexican-American Studies at the University of Houston. And I'm Brandon Ronninghouse, a political science professor from the University of Houston. Thanks for hanging out with us and talking politics um, on, a, on a kind of a, a whirlwind week, right? We're definitely in the midst of recovery from the snowmageddon that hit Texas and much of the U.S. this last week. Uh, but there's a nomination again happening in Washington, D.C. Really sorry about that. <laughs> uh, but it's a kind of troublesome for some of the Biden nominees, right, Veronimo? Oh, yeah. President Biden has nominated around 22 people. Only nine have been confirmed. Yeah, not a very good record, and some of them have hit a, a a wall. and And it's interesting to see how the debate is shaping because the ones that have hit a, a hard wall mm. are women and people of color. And the interesting thing for me is that they have been questioned because they're tweeting. So. <laughs> yeah, be careful what you tweet, kids, right? It's definitely right. going to live on. Um, right. I actually think you're right. In fact, I had the, the same math. And that's not a great score for the Biden White House, right? And although nominations come and go, Bill Clinton got his third choice for attorney general. Obama needed three tries to get a secretary of commerce. They all won second terms. It's not like the death blow, maybe, that it's presumed to be. But it's definitely an issue for Biden because you can't get off the ground, and that means you can't get your agenda moving. So because the Senate had to deal with the impeachment issue and because they had the power-sharing kind of hullabaloo about who was going to be in charge of what in the 50-50 Senate, things got a little bit delayed. This week, the Senate did vote to confirm Linda Thomas-Greenfield as the UN ambassador and Tom Vilsack as the Secretary of Agriculture again. <laughs> um, the guy didn't even unpack his stuff, basically, and is going to go back to being uh, a head of agriculture. But there are some who are in serious jeopardy, like you say. So Nira Tiedenin is in some danger. The threat, though, Geronimo, is coming from inside the House, like a really bad horror movie, right? It's yeah. not the Republicans. It's the Democrats. Yeah, it's Senator Manchin from uh, West Virginia that is not very supportive of the nominee. And, you know, it's it's an issue that they don't know what's going to do. Mm-hmm. And he's going to basically break the, the 50-50 alliance and put Democrats in a very bad position. But what's interesting here is that Nira Tandon is... Basically, she was nominated to head the OMB mm-hmm. that, you know, it's it's a very important yes. agency, but it's not like, you know, Secretary of Defense or something like that. It's, you know, so a it's fairly a very, obscure, yeah, obscure White House office that, you yeah. know, White House and Congress cares about. And it's really the traffic cop for budget stuff. But like no one's going to ever pick her out of a crowd ever again. Right. She could be at the Starbucks there <laughs> just off <laughs> of the White House grounds and no one would be able to recognize her. Right, name. right, right. So so that's what's interesting. Also, you have uh, Javier Becerra, that mm. was a, a California state attorney that he's been nominated to be Secretary of Health and Human Services. And, you know, the question is like, well, he's not a doctor. He doesn't have experience. 
and say, well, I mean, okay, but that's not a prerequisite. So what's funny here is that suddenly some senators are putting basically new requirements, Mm -hmm. right? And those requirements are not by law. So is it because of where he stands ideologically or his qualifications? And or, that's the same for, for near attendant, right? Yeah. She's very qualified, but apparently senators don't like what she has to say. Yeah. Or, or in the case of Becerra, like the fact that he's got a political trajectory, right? So right. obviously that's part of it too. Let's talk about Tadden. She's um, definitely somebody who is qualified for this job. She's been a domestic policy analyst for a long time. She worked in the Clinton administration um, as a health policy advisor for Health and Human Services. She's definitely somebody who, though, has a pretty sharp tongue on Twitter. She has had some pretty pointed things to say about some of current senators. So about Ted Cruz, she said that vampires have more heart about Tom Cotton. She said that he was a fraud. She tweeted that Mitch McConnell was like Voldemort. <laughs> Not a good thing for you, as you <laughs> Harry Potter fans know. Uh, actually, uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski read aloud the, lead, the, the mean tweets and said that she had tweeted that apparently that the senator was high on her own supply. And so Murkowski asks, you know, what do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean by high on what? Supply of what? So this is not great. But she also was pretty pointed about Bernie Sanders and saying that the Medicaid for Medicare for all proposals were complicated. So I guess what it's getting at is that people like Joe Manchin are saying that these are overly partisan statements, but he had supported nominees who had been equally partisan. And so there's a kind of double standard at work here that a lot of people are calling him out on. Exactly. And that's a problem, that double standard, right? I mean, we had arguably, you can make any type of argument in terms of President Trump's uh, nominees, Department of Education, like that person is not qualified. She has never been a teacher or this or that or, you know, whatever yeah. type of argument you, you want to make. But now when it's uh, the other side, right, they say, oh, my God, stop it. Yeah. This person is not qualified or is overly partisan. And then you You're go so back. <laughs> exactly. You go back. I was like, well, yeah, but, you know, you didn't say anything about the tweets of uh, uh, former President Trump. Right. That, that Some of them, you know, some people could argue that they were very mean. Yeah. And why you didn't say anything? Yeah. And now suddenly you say, well, you, you know, you cannot call Baltimore these or that. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, on the on the Tandon nomination, there are two things that have come into play. I think they're troublesome for the Biden administration. Number one, it breaks the notion that they've got this blue wall, that they're going to keep the Democrats together. So Manchin, obviously, like we've talked about, is going to be a swing vote of, of tremendous importance. So if some of these Democratic candidates go rogue, it's going to be really complicated for the Biden team to be able to right. hold the line. The other is that Biden campaigned as a bridge builder and somebody who was going to, you know, find consensus. But how do you find consensus when you nominate somebody who's been, you know, so much of a flamethrower on Twitter? So those things are all, I think, complicating the Biden team's ability to kind of move forward on this. But there are some nominations that are moving forward, albeit sluggishly, right? Merrick Garland has right. been um, a, a sort of under scrutiny, but was likely to be confirmed as the attorney general. He's going to face some tough questions from Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, from Ted Cruz, uh, from Ben Sass, from Nebraska. So, you know, he wants to focus on civil rights and also on getting to the bottom of what happened during the Capitol riot, which is still in jeopardy. The hearings of those are still in jeopardy, right? The Nancy Pelosi has attempted to develop a kind of 9-11 style commission right. that's going to investigate. The Republicans are balking a little bit. So that's another kind of overly, you know, kind of complicated issue that uh, is going to have to be dealt with to some degree. You t- talked about Becerra, who obviously has been criticized by Republicans, but is likely to face 
nomination and likely to face confirmation, rather. And then finally, Deb Hadland from New Mexico. She's a representative there. She's been the nominee for Interior Secretary. She's faced a bunch of questions about her stances against fossil fuels and particularly fossil fuel extraction on federal lands, which, of course, she'd be in charge of nominally, right, as a secretary, but certainly something that's in her worldview. So is this going to be a possible derailing effect? I mean, Joe Manchin said she was going to, you know, get his support, but there's still kind of room for others maybe who might not stay on board. Like, you know, Kristen Sinema, we're looking in your direction, right? Right. Well, I think, uh, you know, her stand on, on fossil fuels on, on feral lands, I think it's important. And, and, and once again, is this question in terms of the U.S. energy policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we going to start that serious transition to renewables? I mean, it's a must. Yeah. I mean, no one can arguably say no to this transition. Like, you have to work together with oil and gas? Absolutely. You cannot just simply, you know, close the valve and that's it and <laughs> move on, right? So that transition has to be a transition like any other public policy. It has to be a, a staggered transition. And people need to understand what's going to go. You have to do a lot of uh, retooling of new abilities, new training, so on and so forth, right? And I think that it depends how they sell it. I think that Democrats sometimes don't have the important catchphrase that would allow them to move one way or the other and say, well, fossil fuels are bad. But we know that. I mean, everybody knows that, right? But the way that you're presenting is not very good for politics or policy. And, you know, as I say, politics make policies, but also policies make politics. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, you know, it's not my policy. It's the Biden administration's policy. And the Biden administration has been, as you say, kind of willing to, you know, kind of move a step in the direction of renewables. But certainly fossil fuels are still important. So that's definitely going to be something to watch, although she'll likely get through as well. But the Biden administration is getting roughed up, but not maybe as roughed up as the Trump team who this week faced uh, kind of bad news when it came to their releasing of taxes. So the Supreme Court this week uh, rebuffed a bid by former President Donald Trump to shield his tax returns and other financial records from New York grand jury subpoenas. Effectively, what's happening is that the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. Um, has been asking for these documents because they're investigating the payments made to silence two women who alleged they had affairs with Donald Trump and also some possible financial crimes by the Trump organization. So what does this mean for the former president? Is this going to hurt him politically? Is this going to possibly lead to criminal liability issues? Or is it just none of it matters because he's Teflon Don and he's safe from any kind of criticism? Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know if he's uh, Teflon Don anymore, right? Yeah. Because these are serious allegations, right? These are serious allegations that if wrongdoing is proof, a lot of people are going to be, you know, paying a lot of money to a lot of lawyers to be out of it. I mean, remember that Trump paid zero dollars in federal taxes uh, <laughs> for the majority of uh, of the years reviewed by the New York Times. Right. And he paid, you know, I think uh, 750 during his first two years as president. He has received allegedly the Trump organization, a lot of money from foreign sources. So there's a lot of, of things going mm. on. And I think if the investigation says one way or the other way, that's going to be important. And just going back to to Garland as confirmation, he said that the President Biden's investigation, his son's investigations are not going to be stopped. So I think that's going to be very important in order for this potential investigation into President Trump taxes and the Trump organization forward. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, speaking of the Biden administration, they also took a hit, but not directly to the president or the first lady or the first family, but the first dogs, right? So this week, a Newsmax guest, Newsmax is a conservative news organization, uh, attacked Joe Biden's dog for looking dirty and unpresidential. <laughs> well, according to this person, the who I'm not even going to name because that doesn't matter, said that the dog looks like it's from the junkyard. So don't attack champ, right? Let's keep it above the belt here. Let's go for policies. Let's talk about the politics of it. But do not attack my dog, right? Yeah, it was uh, Greg Kelly from uh, Newsmax. Uh, he's an anchor there. <sighs> yeah, I mean, the dog? Seriously? Seriously? Yeah, I well, think, well. And I was reminded, actually, too. So uh, I tweeted this out. So there's actually a, a historical like legacy of this. So FDR also got attacked because of something that happened. So there was a rumor, the same way that we have these kind of crazy conspiracies now, in the 1940s that the, apparently the president had left his little dog, Fala, cute little Scottish terrier, on the Altuian Islands and had spent three or eight or 20 million dollars he said to go back and retrieve and of course none of it was true and so he said he didn't mind but certainly follow mind so Fala does resent these kind of attacks so this is definitely a, a charming way to diffuse the thing but let's keep the dogs and the cats belt. out of it yeah, yeah no absolutely. family no dogs and cats let's just kind of keep it you know agree with the politics right so let's move texas now and this week, the Texas Democrats published a report and basically is the postmortem mm -hmm. of the 2020 election. And, and it's a interesting <laughs> document. Your voice went right? up an octave or so. Do you have something you'd like to say about this? <laughs> I, I mean, uh, it's, it's interesting that uh, these perhaps obvious things are not, uh, they didn't know these things before the election. Yeah. I think it's an interesting document. I think that the conclusion, right? The conclusion is going to be, uh, it's extremely important. And and that conclusion basically is that uh, if the Democratic Party in Texas wants to become a real player at the state level, yeah. right? Because I think it's important to separate between local races and state level races. Yeah. Yeah. I think that what they said is that they need sufficient investment and ambition. Yes. And I think that's really the key sentence or words, four words uh, from the report that are mostly very important. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the thing is that, like, a lot of the, you know, Democrats are pushing back on this saying, first of all, you're pointing fingers everywhere except at yourself, right? What's the saying, you know, if you point one finger, you know, at somebody, your five fingers are pointing, four fingers are pointing back at you, right? So, I mean, this is definitely an issue for the party who, you know, needs to really, I think, search its soul about this. And certainly they can make all these pronouncements about this and that. Um, so it's, for some, I think, just kind of window dressing. But here's the thing. The timing is terrible on this, right? You have this report come out right in the middle of the most vulnerable moment for statewide Republicans in a long while. And why would you release this report at that time where you as a Democrat and the Democratic Party and all the Democratic candidates, including all the people who are coming to Texas as a result, which we'll talk about in a second, are here to kind of, you know, dunk on the 20 years of Republican rule and misinvestment and, you know, uh, all these sorts of issues. So I think that's another kind of just head scratcher about why do this now and uh, and what is what is the reason that has to be announced <laughs> so publicly at this point? Well, I mean... Uh I don't see that uh, as a significant issue. I think that it's important also to look 
within the Democratic Party politics. And I think that uh, releasing this document right now within the Democratic Party, you know, shakes the tree, right? So you just want to see, you know, which apples are going to fall and then start building from those apples that stayed on the tree. So I think it's, you know, it's important they talked about the Latino vote that they, you know, assumed that <laughs> it was going to be 100% Democrat. Largely, it is Democrat. Mm, they say uh, two thirds, uh, yeah. Exactly, two thirds, and that's about right. But they saw very important movements of the Republican Party. And obviously, they don't talk about what happened in, in the RGB region. But, you know, it's yeah. it's a lot to distill in one report. But I think it's important. And it's a, a, the way that I see it, it's a shock for the Democratic Party, for an internal audience, yeah. rather than for an external audience. Right, but we can all see it, right? <laughs> they said the quiet parts out loud, and I think that's the trouble. But look, there are some good things to grow on, right? I mean, they did better in exit polling in 20 than 16 in for younger voters and first-time voters, female voters, moderates. So they're, they're moving the needle on some of these things. And like you say, right. they're winning the vast majority of the Latino vote, although that's changing a little bit. The turnout numbers are, are, are improving significantly since 2000. So like there's a definite kind of positive trend, but, you know, pointing out the negatives here, like you say, I think is a kind of designed to be internally, like we're looking right. at this, we're really soul searching, but it also has the effect of maybe turning people off. But talking about kind of trying to prime the base here, Dan Patrick this week released uh, a series of conservative priorities that he wants to pass in the next three months. This is like he went to the Texas Roadhouse and ordered the (laughs) rib plate and the 16-ounce sirloin. It is a lot of things. And French fries, (laughs) uh, pinto beans, right? And Pecan pie. Oh, yeah. You have to and, have uh, pecan pie. And, yes. and, you know, the peach cobbler, everything. <laughs> it's all the menu Just right here. Put it in my belly. Um, now I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, so lots of stuff here, right? Restrictions right. on abortion, forbidding transgender athletes from competing in women's sports, force the playing of the Star Spangled Banner before events. This is obviously designed to kind of prime the base, but it comes at a moment, Hieronimo, where there are massive failures of leadership in the state, and there are tremendous important questions about how the state's going to recover from these storms. So is this just um, like Dan Patrick, you know, kind of ignoring all that stuff, being tone deaf to those issues? Because, you know, if you look at it here, you know, he basically places the Star Spangled Banner Protection Act fourth between the power grid stability and statewide broadband access. That's interesting. So I wonder if this is misguided. And also I wonder, he clearly knows that the more of these issues you put on the agenda, the more it crowds out consensual issues, the issues that you need to have to right. run the state. So the more right. red meat, the less you're going to get veggies. And the veggies are really what the state needs right now. Absolutely. And I think that's the real important thing here is that throwing red meat during this session where this session has to be the less partisan session because we haven't covered a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> Turns and as out. You say, I, I, exactly. And, it, and, and those are basic things. I mean, like really, really, really basic things yeah. that need to be taken care of. So we have, you know, as you say, ERCOT reform, power grid stability. But then we have still, we, have, we still have a pandemic going mm-hmm. on, right? Businesses are still hurt. People are losing their jobs or people are working two or three jobs to make ends meet. So there's a lot of stuff uh, going on and throwing red meat, in my personal and humble opinion, (laughs) 
is not the right way to do, as you say, it crowd out something that senators and uh, might be inclined to this cause. And, and even the right is not that happy. So like Julie McCarty, who's in the, sort of one of the big wigs in the Tea Party in North Texas, says things like reigning in the governor's emergency powers or protecting minors from sex charges. She says these aren't things that are on the list and this is what the grassroots want. So even the right's not happy about it. So it's an unusual time. Obviously, this is definitely a time you have to kind of keep yourself organized. You got to keep your organization tight. You got to keep yourself clean, just like Sid Miller, who uh, this week, hmm. um, it turns out uh, we find from financial disclosures, likes a clean car, Geronimo. He got six car washes in one month and charges it to a campaign account, which is legal. There's a gray-ish line there when it comes to using your campaign account for personal expenses. And this is also Sid Miller, who had purchased two full-size SUVs for his last campaign. Oh. So there's definitely um, a lot to wash. But um, is this a problem for <laughs> our officials Use double dipping using state money? Or this is not state, this is campaign money for personal-ish yeah. events? Uh, I'm not the right person to bend my opinion <laughs> in this program. <laughs> I mean, look. If it's legal, it's legal, right? I mean, that's the end of it. However, should you be spending your money on <laughs> on, on washing your car? I mean, like, I'm not sure. Right. You know, there are a lot it sends the wrong message. The, right. the wrong message, and you know, the, the important message here is that a lot of people were affected, especially during the winter storm, yeah. right? A lot of people, and regardless of socioeconomic background, some people got messed up the, the their pipes at home yeah. or their pools sprinklers or and, the sprinkler yeah. system, From so on and so to forth. Large, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so I'm like, dude, come on, man. Yeah. I mean, he he didn't do it last week or anything like that. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm just months saying, ago, right? Yeah. Uh, a couple of months ago, but that should keep them pause and say, you know what? Instead of doing the cash, I'm gonna donate or whatever it is that they're going to do. But I think that people need to be able to read the room. Yeah. And and that's something that didn't happen uh, last week. That, that tone uh, deafness has definitely come across. Uh, for instance, there's a store in San Antonio that is selling a Ted Cruz Cancun pinata, <laughs> complete with right. a little roller bag, right? FEMA has come, obviously, to provide support, generators, water, blankets, other kinds of supplies. Uh, President Biden has declared a disaster area for much of Texas. He's going to actually be here in the next few days as of the time of our recording. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is going to be here, but some weren't in town. So Ken Paxson was apparently in Utah during this time. Gary Gates, a, a state house member from uh, Fort Bend County area, taking his private plane to be in Miami. So this is, yeah, as you say, kind of a tone deafness from some elected officials, but also a juxtaposition to those who are here and really working hard to help. And that crosses all partisan barriers, right? You saw lots of individual efforts from members who were out there working hard to try to help people recover from this terrible storm, right? Okay, but let me let me ask you a question. Let me play devil's advocate here. Like in the case of Cruz, right, his fans are defending him. He's like, what do you want him to do to go out and shovel snow? Uh, I mean, what is the real role, right? right? Give me your take and then I'll give you mine. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot they can do it, just to be present for their constituents, right? And if it's just volunteering someplace, if it's helping, you know, donate money, like you said, to organizations, it's really just being on the ground. Procedurally, there are things that they can do. They can facilitate the discussion between 
county officials, state officials, city officials, you know, they can communicate with the federal government. There are all kinds of things that they can do, even in times where it's like not totally their responsibility. This is how government works. I mean, this is the problem of federalism, but it's also the beauty of federalism, right? We can have power sharing. And if everyone's doing their part, then things can move Mm -hmm. smoothly. If they're not, things are obviously a little bit lumpy. And then you've got, you know, ugly photos of you coming home from Cancun <laughs> with your roller bag when people are in their houses with Huge no roller bag, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, uh, I don't for, know for how, he and stuff that, like that. how he fit that in the overhead uh, compartment. I'm curious. Great question, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, I would know. I want we'll, the answer want to, look to that. Into that. Yeah. yeah, I always fail to do that uh, when I travel. Yeah, but I think it's a matter of politics are not only about substance, you know, politics are also about form. Politics are about how you message uh, to your constituency that you're here, right, that you are supporting them. And yes, I mean, I would not expect uh, Senator Cruz to go and shovel snow or, you know, clean the roads or or whatnot. But I think it's important uh, to show this modesty, to show this solidarity, right, that politicians sometimes just talk about solidarity, but said the, the rover never hits the, the road, yeah, right? right? And I think that's extremely, extremely important. Yeah. And you have a lot of local officials that demonstrated that. Yeah. And I think that's also extremely important. Yeah. And then you have the, the, the whole um, uh, issue about ERCOT, right? Yeah. It's like now everyone is backpedaling and say, oh, we need to fix ERCOT. What? Yeah. Like you created it? Like, what are you talking about? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, coming and showing your face is important. And this is actually kind of a moment for the Democrats to be able to have Joe Biden come here. He's respectably popular, I'd say. He's not quite a 50 percent, but he's as high as Governor Abbott. So at least for Democrats, he's not hated the way, say, like Barack Obama might have been a couple of years in and probably the way that Biden will be in a little bit. And Democrats need national attention, right? They need to have uh, the kind of effort from national Democrats to be able to invest in Texas politically after they overpromised and underdelivered in the last election. Biden coming here is an important step towards that. But, you know, that is, of course, about leadership. And it's about questions about, you know, how the party function and how the individual sort of responses take place. So, for instance, this week, as we're speaking, actually, there are two separate legislative hearings on the issue. Greg Abbott gave a speech this week talking about how the he was going to get to the bottom of it. People are angry. He's angry. He subtly implied the ledge was to blame. He said that the legislative session will not end until we fix these problems, implying to some degree that this Mm. is their fault. Although, you know, he was governor for part of the potential for reform, but not for like the initial sets of reforms in 2011 when it was pushed after some blackouts took place that summer. So what do you make of the kind of governor's culpability on this? Uh, Man, again, if you want to take leadership, take leadership, right? If you want to do it, just go and do it. Yeah. I mean, that's a very good and powerful indicator of good leadership, right? If you're going to start, well, this is the prerogative of the of the state legislature or, you know, blame the Green Deal that we don't have Green Deal or anything <laughs> like that. Right. Uh, you know, that's just, you know, politics and that's poor leadership. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in these times, partisanship is so, so extreme and so tired, right? Yeah. That showing good leadership and taking the bull by the horns, you know, yeah. the Texas way. There you go. Wrestle that thing down. <laughs> exactly. I think that it would be very, very powerful politically speaking. Yeah. So I think that if he wants something done, yeah. 
he has to push the state legislature to get it done. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's it's the state legislature's prerogative, but you have to push the yeah. issue. But I think the the the, the Longhorn is like uncatchable <laughs> in some ways. So like you've had the, the, this last year a uh, contract between the Public Utility Commission and the Texas Reliability Entity, which was supposed to be the kind of nonprofit to oversee the regulations that the Public Utility Commission was engaging in, go away. That was under Greg, Rob, Greg Abbott's watch. He also was re- taken a bunch of money from the board from ERCOT, so uh, up to $18,000. Now, it's not uncommon for this to happen. In fact, two-thirds of the governor's appointees have given him money, but this is definitely something that is going to land on the doorstep of the governor's mansion, and he's going to have to resolve this one way or the other. I mean, legislatively, he can get some cover. He can talk his way out of it to some degree, but this is going to be the ad that people are going to run against him, right? That he failed oh, Texas yeah. during this. And is oh, yeah. it totally true? No, of course, not totally true. But, you know, how he handles this will be important. But there's still Absolutely. a lot of trail here that needs to be, um, you know, traversed. And uh, I'm just not sure that politically they're able to make that happen. Right. Absolutely. And and these are the times where leaders are defined by the way that they act yeah. at the end. So we're going to keep a look at these um, because we're going to have uh, in the next couple of days a lot of hearings. So we will be updating you all uh, uh, next week. And that's it for this week. Party Politics is recorded in the George P. Gear Performance Studio at Houston Public Media. Special thanks to our producer, Troy Soltz. Big kudos to our web and graphics team here at Houston Public Media. And finally, thanks to our erstwhile audio engineer, Todd Holslander. I'm Jeronimo Cortina. And I'm Brandon Roddinghouse. We'll see you next week.